After eight years of fighting, the outcome of the Revolutionary War was settled at Yorkstown, Virginia. The Battle of Yorkstown was its last major conflict. In 1781, British troops under Cornwallis had fled the Carolinas and they had retreated to Yorktown to wait on reinforcements. Washington and his Continental Army, along with their French allies, they marched south from New York, hoping to outnumber and pin down the Redcoats. The siege lasted just three weeks before Cornwallis and his army surrendered to General George. Now, there were other battles far more decisive. The Battle of Saratoga, the Battle of King's Mountain. But Yorktown was the final nail in the British coffin. The peace treaty that Cornwallis signed allowed for the independence of the colonies. In fact, as the British marched out to surrender, the Redcoats' own army band played a ballad entitled, The World Turned Upside Down, for their world had been. The Battle of Yorktown proved that a major shift in power had taken place. It was obvious now, the British were out, the colonies were under new rule. And this bit of history helps us understand the prophecy we find in Revelation chapters 14 through 19. John is now a war correspondent. He's embedded with the troops. This portion of Revelation covers a strategic battle. Actually, the whole Bible is a report from the front lines. For the Bible is about a war. God put man in charge of his creation, only to watch him lose control of it to Satan. And God wants it back. God has gone to great extremes to redeem what's been his all along. The battle has raged now for thousands of years. Call it the Redemptionary War. Satan leads a revolt against God while a loving God seeks to redeem or win back all that belongs to him. Now there have been battles in this war far more decisive than the conflict we'll study in Revelation chapters 14 through 19. For example, there was the battle at the Red Sea. This is where God saved his people from a watery annihilation, delivered Israel and the promise of the Savior. There was the battle at Bethlehem. There the Savior invaded this world. There was the fierce battle in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus overcame temptation in his own betrayer to confirm his commitment to the cross. Then, of course, the battle at Calvary. This was the strategic victory. The Lamb of God took away the sins of the world. And, of course, the battle at the tomb, where Jesus rolled back the stone and conquered death, hell, and the grave. These were the battles that did the heavy lifting. These are the victories that will win the ultimate war. But the battle in Revelation chapters 14 to 19, what we call the battle of Armageddon, like the battle at Yorktown, is the final battle. Here is where the victor becomes obvious. At this final battle, Satan is revealed for what he's been all along. The usurper, the thief, the squatter, the one who dared to take occupancy without ownership. Armageddon is the battle where Jesus returns to earth and evicts the devil and takes possession of the planet. At this final battle, 
Jesus ends mankind's coup d'etat and boots the devil out on his pointed ear. It's only a matter of time before Jesus returns to establish his kingdom and his authority over planet earth. Now, if you've been reading the war reports filed from Genesis to Revelation, you realize that the battle in chapters 14 through 19 is really a foregone conclusion. And yet when it actually happens, it'll be stunning. It'll be climactic. In fact, these chapters spotlight the star players in this battle. If you cut chapters 11 through 14 out of Revelation, it would be like watching a football game without a program. Oh, you'd enjoy the action, but you wouldn't be able to identify any of the players. You'd know the what, but you wouldn't know the who. Well, Revelation, these chapters that we're studying, give us the roster of the end times. The rebel forces, we've seen them already. They include the dragon. We read about him in chapter 12. The beast, chapter 13. His accomplice, the false prophet. Their headquarters, the city of Babylon, and the false religious system that John refers to as the great whore. Not a very flattering term, by the way. Whereas God's troops call them His witnesses. They include 144,000 Jews and two Jerusalem prophets, three angelic messengers, one like the Son of Man who comes carrying a sharp sickle, and then the armies of heaven. If you recall, chapter 13 focused on the bad guys, particularly the beast. In fact, like any good roster, it even gave us his jersey number, 666. Whereas chapter 14 lists God's team. And that's what we're going to investigate today. And it's only fitting that the very first person listed on God's team is our best player and our captain and our coach and our general manager, and our team owner, and our everything all rolled into one. John begins chapter 14. Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion. John sees Jesus. Hey, after all, John's vision, this book, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not the revelation of the lampstands or the beast or the whore or the seals or the 666. All too often we get caught up in the peripherals and we miss Jesus. This book is about the glory of Jesus Christ. For Jesus is no longer that humble Galilean preacher who walked dusty trails in first century Israel. Oh no, He is now King of all kings and He is Lord of all lords. He has been glorified and exalted. And today, all creation is under His feet. Jesus is the Lamb that roars like a lion. And He is the lion that bears the scars of a sacrificial lamb. Here John sees the Lamb. And I want you to notice His posture and His place. He's standing on Mount Zion. That Jesus is standing tells us a lot here. Did you know in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 13, we're told that the Father God says to His Son Jesus, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Well, that's what Jesus has been doing now for nearly 2,000 years. He's been sitting at God's right hand. Here though, He stands to His feet. He stretches His legs and He flexes His muscles. 
Jesus finally is ready to stride and ride and make war with this wicked world. The Lamb stands to His feet and prepares for battle. And notice where Jesus stands. He is on Mount Zion. Mount Zion was one of the several hills that made up the capital city of Jerusalem. It was where David built his capital. Over time, Zion became a name for the entire city. And here John sees the Lamb standing in Jerusalem. He is standing in the place of kings, for it is his intent to rule. And it's no accident that he has returned to the scene of the crime. Jesus Christ was crucified in Jerusalem. And you see, this is God's issue with this rebel planet. For the world today mocks and scoffs and neglects and despises the cross, the cross of Christ. Jesus sacrificed His life. He laid it down for us. He bled for us. Why aren't we willing to be led by Him? Hey, don't get upset when this chapter speaks of hell, for it will. And blood and judgment. Don't get upset. Let me ask you a question. What punishment would you assign if you sacrificed your own son for me and then I turned around and spit in his face? What punishment would you assign? Well, hey, God is just and righteous in all he does. Settle that from the beginning. Revelation 14 verse 1 is such a powerful picture. This chapter needs to shape our vision of Jesus, how we see Jesus For one day soon, our Lord will stand where He once was slaughtered. He'll be glorified where He was crucified. He'll be worshipped where He was wounded and hated. He'll rule from a throne where He hung from a tree. Where Jesus showed mercy, He will soon establish justice. Hey, when you think of the Jesus in your future, the Jesus every man will meet and face and bow before, Don't think of Mary's infant. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And His coming does teach us much about the heart of God. But don't leave Jesus cooing in a manger. He's not there anymore. When you think of the Jesus in your future, don't think of Jesus hanging on the cross. The sin of the world was laid on His shoulders. The Lamb of God was bound to the altar. But He's no longer on the cross. When you think of the Jesus in your future. Don't think of the Jesus outside the empty tomb, going and coming and surprising His disciples with the reality of His resurrection. That only occurred for 40 days. No, when you think of Jesus, the Jesus you'll face one day, think of John's revelation. For John sees the Lamb, not in a manger, not tied to the altar, not even next to the empty tomb. He sees Jesus standing in all His regal glory on Mount Zion, where the kings of Israel once reigned. When Jesus stands, it means He puts His foot down. One day, Jesus will right all wrongs, and He'll subdue a world gone mad, and He'll crush any and all resistance. Psalm 2 verse 9 looks forward to this scene in Revelation. God says, I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. Psalm 102 verse 13 speaks of that same day and that same event. You will arise and have mercy on Zion for the time to favor her. Yes, the set time has come. 
There is a set time for the Lord's return. The clock is ticking right now. We are grateful for the Lamb's first coming. For He offered us forgiveness and joy and peace with God. But understand that Jesus of your future will make no offers, only demands. This is why before Armageddon, the final battle, Jesus is going to orchestrate one final gospel push. We learned in Revelation 7 that the greatest spiritual awakening the world has ever seen is yet to come. Today, Jesus leans on us, His church, to spread the good news of salvation. But when the church is raptured, and by this point, chapter 14 it has been, He resorts to other methods to get out the final offer of His pardon. And that's what this chapter is all about. You could refer to Revelation chapter 14 as the last chance chapter. To the very end, the Lamb of God has a heart for the nations. He wants to see every man and woman and child saved. This is why he issues a last call for a drink of salvation. And chapter 14 identifies his messengers. And first up, there was with him 144,000 having his father's name written on their foreheads. We met these guys earlier in chapter 7. They were Jews, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes. And notice here, they're marked with the father's name. Now, when I was 10 years old, I went to a football camp in the summer, and mom would always write my name in my underwear. You see, you can share soap, and you can share t-shirts, And you can even share toothbrushes, for that matter. But you just don't share your underwear. Mom knew that a cabin full of 10-year-old boys gets kind of chaotic. And that's why she wrote my name in the elastic band on my underwear so everyone would know which underwear was mine. And that's what God does here in the last days. It's going to be crazy days in cabin earth. So God writes His name. On these 144,000 followers. God's enemies will know that they belong to God. It's their protection. This makes them indestructible witnesses. Super sharers of the gospel. Remember at the end of chapter 13. Folks who worshipped the beast had their allegiance sealed with a mark in their right hand or in their forehead. The number 666. Well here is the godly antithesis. These witnesses are bolder in their righteousness than the devil is in his rebellion. Their allegiance is sealed not with a mere number on their forehead, but with God's holy name written on them. Notice verse 2. And I heard a voice from heaven. The scene now shifts from Mount Zion on earth to, to the throne in heaven. And John hears a voice like the voice of many waters, a roaring waterfall. And like the voice of a loud thunder, the boom of a thunderclap. You remember on earth, Jesus often spoke in an indoor voice. He didn't raise his voice too often. He probably at times talked calmly to his disciples. But you remember in chapter 1, John describes the voice of Jesus as the sound of a waterfall. He describes it as a booming Loud, authoritative sound. Today, Jesus' voice drowns out all other voices, all other opinions. Jesus' authority reigns supreme. 
He says, And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. The Lamb and the 144,000 witnesses are standing on Mount Zion. So who is this singing in heaven? Well, these are probably the folks who believed in Christ in the great tribulation and were martyred for their faith. And only the 144,000 can witness, can, can relate to what they've endured. Only the 144,000 have, have experienced this persecution and this difficult time of trying to live for God under His judgments and under His wrath. And so it's fitting that only the 144,000 can sing this song with these martyred believers. You recall earlier in chapter 6, the fifth seal opens and we see these last days martyrs under the altar. And they're asking a question. How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? These future believers are asking what you and I ask at times. Why does the evildoer get away with his crimes? Why is Satan allowed to harm God's people? Don't you ask, ask these questions? I do. How long will God allow this pushback and this injustice? You know, I was thinking this past week that if life went smoothly, there'd be no need for us to trust in God. Faith would be easy. And whatever faith we developed would be lame and weak as a result. You see, for faith to have muscle, there needs to be resistance. There needs to be pushback from, this eve, from the evil in the world. This is what builds faith, strong faith in God's people. Right now, we struggle though. We cry to God, how long? And yet the day is coming when Jesus will put an end to that resistance. He'll turn this topsy-turvy world right side up. And that's what John is seeing now in Revelation 14. The set time has come. And the believers alive in that day will sing a new song. The folks who sing this song in heaven were those who were saved in the day of God's wrath. They have endured great persecution. But Jesus sees to it that their suffering turns to singing as He will with us. The vast majority of heaven's population will be those taken in the rapture. Believers at the time and the dead in Christ who waited for the resurrection. But there will be a special subgroup in heaven. Those who came to faith in the midst of God's judgment. The church is delivered from such a fate. That's why only the 144,000 Jewish witnesses will be able to sing their song. And John says of these 144,000, he says, They are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. Apparently, these witnesses are men on a mission. They don't have time for marriage or for family and its concerns. I mean, can you imagine celebrating an anniversary or, or coaching a little league team while God is in the throes of judging the world? Wow. God will be making a last call. The eternal destiny of all mankind will hang in the balance. God's witnesses need to be single-minded They've taken the pledge to only preach. That has to be their priority. And again, this is why the 144,000, not the church, are the only souls who know the song 
of these tribulation believers. You see, this will be a different day. This will be a different set of conditions. John then adds, these are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Wow. Surely the 144,000, they live at a different time and they minister under different conditions than you and I experience today. But this is something that should be true of us all. Do you follow the Lamb wherever He goes? You should. I I like this poster. Jesus is on the bench there and He's telling this guy, No, I'm not talking about Twitter. I literally want you to follow me. We should follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Verse 4 tells us, These were redeemed from among men, being firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. These 144,000 Jewish witnesses were saved at the beginning of God's last call. These were the first fruits of this final harvest. Now they're leading others to salvation. And in their mouth was found no deceit. For they are without fault before the throne of God. These men are true blue. They're impeccable witnesses in perilous times. You know, it's like in baseball. Your best pitcher is usually your closer. Well, here God has raised up an army of closers for His last call. And that's not all. This is not God's only method of end times broadcasting. For as the clock winds down, as the time runs out, the Lamb pulls out all the stops. Verse 6, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him. For the hour of His judgment has come. And worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and springs of water. And this should speak volumes to you and me. For one day, God will use angels to proclaim the good news. Angels are bold, and obedient, and accurate, and powerful. You know, I'll bet you not one angel has ever chickened out on an opportunity to share his faith with a co-worker. Angels are never too busy to walk down the street and share the gospel with a neighbor. And I'm sure angels are far more efficient communicators than the very best of today's preachers and witnesses. Yet for the moment, God has chosen us, not angels, to be His spokespeople. Did you know Jesus loves you? And Jesus wants you to share in the joy of seeing other people come to know Him. He wants to use you as His spokesperson. You know, apparently God sees value in using folks saved by grace to share His grace. You know, I suppose we have one advantage over the angels. Angels are good salesmen. They preach grace, but they've never tasted grace. We, on the other hand, aren't as much salesmen as we are satisfied customers. And though far less efficient, perhaps we're more effective, for our lives are proof of God's amazing grace. We share, or we savor what we now share. Yet once the church goes up, God will, once again, He will use angels to share the everlasting gospel. You know, like the airplane that pulls the banners, you know, over Turner Field during the Braves game. 
Imagine an angel. The angel in verse 6, he's going to fly through the heavens preaching the everlasting gospel. The Lamb's last call will go out through the 144,000 witnesses, the Jews, and through the two prophets in Jerusalem, and now through three angels. Verse 8 tells us, And another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. As Jerusalem will be the headquarters of God's kingdom on earth, Babylon has always been Satan's headquarters. In essence, the Bible is a tale of two cities. And here this second angel proclaims the crumbling of Satan's empire. He's saying Babylon has fallen. The devil's days are numbered. The final battle looms. The revolt is about to be over. We'll talk more about Babylon in chapter 17. And then verse 9. Then a third angel followed them. And you should notice the progression of the messages spoken by these angels. The first angel shared God's salvation. The second, Satan's devastation. Now the third angel warns us of the sinner's destination. This angel is saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. Usually, God tempers his judgments with mercy, but not here. People who resisted the witness of the church and now they're deaf to God's last call. These people are sentenced to the full strength, the 100 proof, undiluted wrath of God. This is why you need to take heed to the gospel. And apparently the final straw is when they receive the mark of the beast in their right hand or in their forehead. Whether it's a barcode or a microchip or maybe a vein scan or an infrared tattoo or some technology not yet in invented. It'll all be associated with the worship and paying homage to a last day's ruler who will set himself up in the place of Christ. That's why we call him Antichrist. Realize it's not a cashless commerce. It's not high-tech identification. This is not what's evil. In fact, it, it'll actually be pretty convenient. What makes it evil is that this is the technology that Satan will confiscate and use to blackmail the world into worshiping him. Whatever form all this assumes, I believe people will know what they're doing. But they'll be afraid. How will they feed their family without this mark? As we learned in chapter 13, the mark will be the means by which people buy and sell, by which they buy bread and food for their family. They're thinking to ensure my survival. In many cases, to ensure the survival of my kids. You know, I've got to take this mark. They'll have to pledge their allegiance to the Antichrist. They'll sell their soul to satisfy their stomachs. And God will take this all as a dagger in the back. For this will be mankind's final rejection of His grace and mercy. And thus the third angel warns, He shall be tormented. The one who takes this mark shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels 
and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Now up until now, John's vision is focused on the glories of heaven and the judgments on earth. But now he gets a glimpse of the torments of hell. The reality of hell is the message of this third angel. And yet, hell isn't really a message we hear a whole lot about today, is it? A lot of churches sort of play down the idea of a literal hell. I've heard it said, the world today is so concerned about left and right that we've neglected the above and the below. Hey, just because folks today like being politically correct, just because they're squeamish and lack the stomach for a literal hell, don't think God shares their attitude. God makes hell the topic of this third angel. A.W. Tozer once wrote, The vague and tenuous hope that God is too kind to punish the ungodly has become a deadly opiate for the consequences of millions. Once there was a pastor, he was preaching passionately when he noticed one of his congregation over here had fallen asleep. He decided to make an example out of the old boy, and so he whispered, Everyone who wants to go to heaven, stand up. Everybody but the sleeper stood to his feet. Then he had the congregation sit down. This time he shouted, Everybody who wants to go to hell, stand up. And of course, his loud voice startled the young man. He jumped up to his feet to see what was going on. After the fella got his wits about him, he looked up at the pastor and he said, Preacher, I don't know what we're voting on, but it looks like you and I are the only ones in favor of it. (laughs) Understand, Jesus isn't in favor of anybody going to hell. He's not. 2 Peter 3 verse 9 tells us that he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus tells us that hell was never made for God's people. It was never made for human beings. Hell was made for the devil and his angels, not for human beings made in the image of God. People who go to hell choose their destination by refusing to live under Jesus' authority. While on earth, Jesus wasn't the least bit hesitant to warn people about hell. Did you know Jesus spoke more about hell than he did about heaven? He doesn't want anyone to miss the train to heaven and end up in hell. Here the third angel warns the earth's inhabitants about the tortures of hell. Folks in hell will experience, and I quote, they'll be tormented with fire and brimstone. The smoke of their torment ascends forever. They have no rest day or night. A man, he goes out, he mows his lawn on a hot muggy summer afternoon. He comes inside for some ice water and he says to his wife, Man, it's hotter than hell. No, it's not. I'm not sure where the Jews got their information, but the Jewish Talmud reads, The fire of hell is 60 times as hot as the fire on earth. Here we're told that people in hell are tormented by fire, by hot coals, 
by stifling smoke. In verse 10, the Greek word translated brimstone refers to sulfur flashes. The New English Bible translates the term brimstone as sulfurous flames. Think of the flash pots at a rock concert. These little mini explosions are caused by sulfur ignition. Burning sulfur gives off a blazing flame and a noxious odor. Hell is like living in the mouth of an erupting volcano. The heat is searing and unbearable. Flames blister and burn. Layers of smoke cause acute suffocation. Everyone in hell will grope for air like an asthma sufferer. You think the smog is bad in Los Angeles? Hell is smog central. And notice the punishment is eternal. He says the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. Is it any wonder that hell's residents have no rest day or night? This is certainly the picture that Jesus painted in Luke chapter 16 of the rich man who died and went to hell. The rich man cried out to heaven, Have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of the finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. I mean, this man's tongue, he was a rich man. His tongue was used to the finest wines. Now he's denied a single drop of water. His lips are cracked. His body is dehydrated. There is no relief from his agony. You know, some people doubt the literalness of the tortures of hell. They assume here that Jesus must be speaking metaphorically. But those same folks never question the reality of streets of gold or of banquets and of the wiping away of all tears and pleasure forevermore. If we assume the joys of heaven are real, why not the agonies of hell? And certainly there will be no rest for those in hell. Hell will be like sitting on 285, stuck in the middle of rush hour forever and ever and ever. Hell is a hemorrhoid attack in a world without preparation age. Hell is like an argument with your spouse that goes on and on and on and on and never quits. Hell is a panic attack that never subsides. And there's no Prozac in hell. There's no artificial pick-me-ups. Everybody in hell is stressed and depressed. And everyone in hell is mourning over what could have been. It's been said, one of the horrors of hell is the undying memory of a misspent life. Hell's inhabitants are tortured by remorse. Their status never changes. You know, in Dante's Inferno, the author makes the sign over hell read, He who enters here abandons all hope. And the worst of hell's torments, the worst that occurs, is expressed here, and I quote, It occurs in the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb. I interpret that to mean that while folks are agonizing in hell, they will be aware of what's happening in heaven. It's like the one-way glass we've got here between the sanctuary and the prayer room. Those behind the mirror, they see us, but we can't see them. That's the way it is in hell. You'll be able to see. If you're in hell, you'll be able to see into heaven, but heaven won't be able to see into hell. 
They won't be able to see you. You'll see them, but they won't see you. Hell's residents will spend an eternity gawking at what they've missed out on. They'll see the party, the feasting, the joy, us with Jesus. Folks in hell will try to forget what could have been. And just about the time they've driven the blessings from their mind, they'll look up and they'll see another party gearing up in the presence of the Lamb. This is why the third angel warns the world of a literal hell. For he, along with the Lamb, doesn't want anyone to go there. Verse 12. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God in the faith of Jesus Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. There is no rest for those in hell, but notice, those who put their faith in Jesus will rest with the Lord forever. In contrast, heaven is going to be like a quiet afternoon in a hammock with your phone on silent. It's rest for all eternity. But this is why we need to get busy right now. We'll have forever to rest with the Lord. But serving the Lord and telling our friends about Jesus and letting our light shine is something that we can only do now. Realize we'll have all eternity to rest with our Lord, but we only have a few short hours left to do God's will. Now, I've talked to you about hell today, but I need to ask you, do you believe in hell? I mean, really, do you believe in hell? I mean, don't just say that you do and then walk off smugly and go about your everyday business. For if you believe in a literal hell, even if you're not headed there, I'll bet you know someone who is. How can you be nonchalant? Don't you feel compelled to speak to them? To love them? To try and win a hearing so that you can talk to them about Jesus? If you really believe in hell, you'll talk up Jesus. Notice verse 14. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud. And on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. Here's King Jesus carrying a swing blade. And another angel came out of the temple crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. Verse 16. So he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. This is the final harvest. Just before the last battle, one final surge of souls will give their lives to Jesus and come home in a last day's harvest. You you remember the parable that Jesus told in Matthew chapter 13. He talked about the wheat and the tares. He said that the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed seed. But one night an enemy came into his field and planted tares or weeds among the wheat. No one knew what the enemy had done until the crop began to sprout. And you could see the weeds growing alongside the wheat. Well, the workers wanted to uproot the weeds, but the owner knew that if you pulled the weeds up too soon, you could also damage the wheat. The workers needed to wait. The separation would occur only at harvest time. 
There's no need for us to guess at the meaning of this parable. For Jesus, He gives us the interpretation. He says, He who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all things that offend, and those who practice lawlessness, and cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Well, here in Revelation 14, the parable gets fulfilled. For at this point in the great tribulation, the end is near. And Jesus thrusts in His sickle. It is time to separate the wheat from the tares. The believers from the unbelievers. The harvest of souls has come. At His first coming, Jesus sowed the seed. But when He returns, He will harvest the crop. His first pass over the field will bring in the believers. But the second thrust of the sickle is an act of judgment. We're told, then another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven. He also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar who had power over fire. And he cried with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth for her grapes are fully ripe. Spiritually speaking, sin and rebellion is like fruit. It hangs from a person's life until it goes too far and you become ripe for judgment. Today, the evil of mankind is ripening. And trust me, mankind has finally gone too far. If we haven't gone too far, we are really close. We're at the end of the age. And we're told that Jesus will return and He will thrust in His sickle of judgment. This is what happens in verse 19. And so the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great wine press of the wrath of God. Wow, grapes are crushed and squished in the wine press. Often they're stomped on until they, until they release their juices, until their covers are crushed. And in the Bible, the great wine press is an idiom for God's judgment. He will crush the rebellion between His toes. In John 15 verse 1, Jesus said, I am the true vine. In contrast here, the vine of the earth is judged by God. And thus the question for us becomes, from which vine are we hanging? Are we in Christ? Are we growing in Christ? Or are we hanging out with this world? Hang on to the wrong vine and you'll be crushed in the wine press of God's wrath. Verse 20, and the wine press was trampled outside the city, and blood came out of the wine press up to the horses' bridles for 1,600 furlongs. 
Notice it's not wine that results from this pressing and this crushing. It's blood. For Jesus is going to crush those who have defied His authority. And here we have an actual place and a specific time. An actual time and place in mind. Remember the context of the Lamb's last call. It leads to the final battle. At the battle of Armageddon, the blood of evil men will fill up a valley 600 furlongs or 200 miles long. Blood will rise to the horse's bridle. By the way, 200 miles is the approximate length of the Holy Land. From the Golan Heights down to the Dead Sea. I believe that John foresees the day when the valleys of Israel, and particularly the one outside Jerusalem, perhaps the Kidron, will become a blood-stained battlefield. When the third day of fighting ended at Gettysburg, 57,000 soldiers lie dead on the field. 57,000. A reporter referred to Gettysburg as the harvest of death. It was one of the bloodiest battles in the bloodiest war in American history. I mean, the battlefield was turned into a cemetery. What else could it be turned into? But I got to tell you, the carnage at Gettysburg pales in comparison to what will happen at this final battle. For Jesus will wield His sickle. He has given us ample warning. The wheat must be separated from the weeds. Now, which one are you? 